Well, good morning. Our passage today will be James chapter 4. Be the text that we're in, as John read earlier. It's been said that books don't change your life, sentences do. And one of those sentences that has haunted me in a good way ever since I heard it is the words from A.W. Tozer where he said this, every man is as close to God as he wants to be. Let that sit in your soul for a while. Every man is as close to God as he wants to be. We all pursue what we want. Uh, We all pursue that which we love. So what's your excuse? What are the excuses you've propped up as to why you don't have the kind of relationship with God that you really wish you did? I mean, we read throughout the Bible, we read throughout the scriptures, we see heroes of the faith. We look at their lives and we think, yeah, I, I wish I was more like Paul. I wish I was more like the Apostle John, or this person, or David, or whoever it is. wish I was more like that great saint of old. But do you? I mean, really. Or have you allowed that heart, as Jeremiah declares it, that is deceitful and and wicked above all else, to deceive you and to trick you into thinking that, oh, yeah, I just, I I really wish I could have this, this dynamic relationship with God. Is that real? Uh, Benjamin Franklin had the line that a man who is good at making excuses is often good for nothing else. And think about how true that is. Now, what excuses have you propped up for why you aren't that close to God? Whatever the excuse is, it's garbage. Whatever the excuse is. You might have excuses for why you're not in the NFL or the NBA or why you're not a CPA. I don't know what it is. And there might be real reasons for that. You might have limiting factors. Not tall enough to be in the NBA, not skilled enough, too many injuries, etc. You know, whatever you want to add to that. Uh, You might have thought, you know, I had the skills to do this, that, and the other. I'll never be an Elon Musk because I don't have that gifting, you know, or, or whatever kind of thing you might prop up. And I think in the, in the Christian world, as those who pursue Christ, we might try to prop up some excuse. Well, I don't have the same kind of spirit in me like the Apostle Paul. Look at the work ethic he had. Look at the drive he had. I'm not that guy. And those are the ways that we comfort ourselves for not being what we know we ought to be. Instead, we've made up many an excuse. Like Benjamin Franklin said... And in the end, we find towards the last days of our lives that we are not what we ought to have been. How's that for an introduction? You know, we're told now for about the last 70 years that your sermon always has to be happy. And, you know, you got you to get people excited for the week and that whole thing. But I think that's garbage. Honestly, I think that's just rubbish. I think that because I've, I've read through too much of the Bible to come to that conclusion... A lot of psalms don't end happy. A lot of the, read through the prophets if you dare, 
and, and try to find a happy ending. There's, a, there's an ebb and a flow to it, of course. But there are times to feel the weight of what you've done. And to allow that to do some good, as Ecclesiastes tell us, is more wisdom found in the house of mourning than in the house of feasting. You're going to learn more going to a funeral than you will from going to a movie. And we know that to be true, and yet we still pursue the happy. James, that was my happy introduction. James has quite the, uh, the statement to give us. It's much harsher than even what I shared. He says in James chapter 4, returning to the text, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God is immutable. He doesn't change. His nature, his character doesn't alter or move. So if there's a problem in the relationship, unlike your marriage, it's always your fault. Now, in marriage, there's a give and a take. There is somewhat your fault, somewhat her fault, whatever you got going on here. There's always a back and forth. There's sin involved on both sides of the equation. A couple of you are snickering because you're like, no, the wife's always right. <laughs> Quit being a wimp, gentlemen. <laughs> no, the, the thing is here, God's always right, and you know that. And what it takes to come close to him is not complicated to us. It's not something we fail to understand. It's something that we are unwilling to do. And that's, that's quite different. He says, after telling us to draw near, and the picture here is, is much of the prodigal son returning home. And the father is eager to, in Luke 16, we see that illustrated so well, but the father is eager for us to return home. And this letter of James was written to Christians. This is not a, a text on salvation. This is a text on believers who have gotten mixed in and conformed to the world in various ways. And he's telling them as prodigals, come back home. Draw near to God. And he will be faithful to draw near to you. And then he gives us the actionable steps. It's easy to throw out a term or a phrase that's pregnant with meaning and for people to attach their own meaning to it. Everybody remembers, well, anybody a little bit older, remembers 2008 and Obama's uh, speech. You know, his entire mantra for getting elected was two words, hope and change. Hope and what? What kind of change? And he didn't articulate it, and people were like, yes, vote for him, in droves. We ran out and voted for him. And he didn't articulate what he even meant by that hope and by that change. And that's a lot of times what we do. We throw out a phrase, and we let the, the, the silence there just fill it up with your own thoughts and ideas. It's a great way to have a broad fan base, is to not really articulate, not have a doctrinal statement, not really say what you mean. But instead what he does is he gives us some actions to then partake in if you actually want to draw near. Are you a fraud or not? This is what I was talking about. Every man's as close to God as he wants to be. So if I really want to be close to God, what do I need to do? Verse 8 again. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Whew. James is taking no prisoners here. Cleanse your hands. He talks about the external and the internal. 
He talks about this external issue. Cleanse your hands. Get that if you're doing, if you're cheating the IRS, if you've defrauded a brother or sister, if you've done something wrong, go fix it. I was delighted to see one of my children this morning. Right before communion was given, she came over, sat by her sister and said, I'm sorry I was mean about shoes this morning. I shouldn't have done that. You're like, that's cleansing your hands. It's not that complicated. She's 11 and she get, understands that idea. If, you've defraud, if you have sinned against someone, go try to fix it. Seek reconciliation. And if you don't think there's anything there, great. Uh, pray over the matter first. You're not by yourself acquitted, 1 Corinthians 4. At the same time, pray over that. If you've sinned against someone, go right the wrong. This is very Old Testament. James is considered like a Proverbs of the New Testament. He doesn't write like Paul. He has a different manner and way of going about things. And right here, he's very much likening back to Proverbs and to Isaiah and other prophets where he's saying, cleanse your hands. This is common. God doesn't want you just to, to talk a good game. He wants you to act upon it. Cleanse your hands you sinners, and purify your hearts. As Joel chapter 2 tells us, rend your heart and not your garments. I find it fascinating that so many people are influenced by actors. Because actors' whole job is to act. Yeah, whoever did the, oh, exactly. This isn't shocking. Their whole game is to get you to think the way they think, to get you to sympathize with them, to get you to believe them. So Johnny Depp, or whoever you like, stands up and, and shares some opinion on something. He starts to cry, and you're like, going to believe those tears? This whole game is playing that. That's all he does. He says here, rend your hearts in Joel chapter 2, excuse me, not your garment. It's so easy to externally Make these things look right. It's so easy to manipulate people once you learn that awful game. It's easy to, to trick people and to, and to pull them in directions. And this isn't always this, the, the most villainous people. If you've ever watched a police interrogation where some, uh, some guy who's skilled at getting this person to say something, you watch that and it's, it's uncomfortable as a Christian. Like, wow, man, he is just totally lying to this criminal to get what he wants to know that's it's easy to act it's easy to play a part the scripture never calls us to do that nonsense that the entire book of malachi was written against the people who were totally fine with external stuff and were unwilling to go internal cleanse your hands Purify your hearts. And then he calls them, he adds to that, you double-minded. In some ways, this is the key word for James 4. In some ways, the, the key issue going on in the entire epistle of James. It's a double-minded or a double-souled spirit is what's being put in view here. You are trying to play a game. The problem is you're playing a game with a God who is a consuming fire. And he's not okay with that. We learn in Exodus in various places, chapter 34, that God is a jealous God. Behold, my name is jealous. He doesn't play games with any of that stuff. 
He is a, a spouse who's unwilling to tolerate infidelity. And that's shown to us all throughout the Old Testament and reaches its pinnacle in the book of Hosea, where Hosea goes out and grabs and is told to marry a wife of harlotry and to be a living illustration of the repugnant nature of the, the unfaithfulness of the nation of Israel to Almighty God. Double-mindedness is not something God is willing to tolerate, and he will seek to root it out of your life, though you might stubbornly refuse that rebuke. And James doesn't stop at verse 8 in articulating what it means to draw near. He then says in verse 9, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. I find humor in a lot of things. Uh, I laugh at all kinds of things that I probably shouldn't laugh at. Uh, I laugh sometimes. It's probably, I don't know, a nervous response or something like that to think. I don't really know that it's that, but I will laugh at all kinds. If somebody's especially rude to me, a lot of times I laugh. I've done that since I was a kid. People being abnormally rude, it's like, you can't be serious. Uh, it, it, it's a little jarring when somebody says something that rude. Uh, my, one of my best friends growing up was a black guy, and uh, we would hear stuff every now and then. Somebody would say something like straight up racist to him, and I would just blow up laughing at the person. Like, you've got to be joking. You actually think, you actually say that to somebody? And then they would say stuff to me. It was kind of odd, you know, but it, it didn't actually hurt my feelings. I thought, you're a repugnant person. I laughed at it. I think sometimes that's just flat out the wrong response. Right here, sometimes I find humor in things that I shouldn't be laughing at. Anger has been a besetting sin in my life, and sometimes laughing at the wrong thing. Watching a movie I shouldn't be watching. Tolerating, ah, it's funny, so I'll let it go. Now, maybe you've been laughing, maybe you've been entertained by the wrong stuff. Maybe you've let the jokes lead you to a lightheartedness that isn't fitting for the occasion. Uh, it, in my lifetime, my 45 years, I've noticed a change even with funerals. Has anybody else noticed this? That it used to be at funerals, you saw a gentleman wearing a suit, usually a dark, either navy or black. I, was, I talked to a guy at um, a funeral home. I can't remember which one right now. But I asked him if he noticed this. He goes, oh, man. So when I came into the funeral business, he said it was only two colors. There's the navy and black that you could wear. He said that was just it. That was the uniform. He said over the years, he's watched as things have become more and more casual. And he's still wearing the suit, but he, he finds it odd. Even like the, when someone dies, now we do a celebration of life and we go drink a beer at the bar and that kind of stuff. And that, that's the expression. That's avoiding the reality of, of what's going on. There's something that needs to happen when your loved one dies. It's therapeutic to cry. To let it flow, not just bottle it up and, and suppress it all like it didn't really bother you. Instead of crying at the funeral, you're going to go home and in the shower cry by yourself. That's, that's not community living. We've got a world claiming it wants community, and yet we're so fraudulent that we won't even act like this person that I care so much about is past and has left this world. Now, there is a time... There is a season, there is a moment where you need to knock off the laughter and start crying. 
The question is really, what is it that provokes your heart to tears? But what is it that moves you to tears? Uh, once upon a time, I was taking some, uh, many, most of you know I have chronic headache problems and stuff like that through the years. And at one point, they put me on some medicine. And uh, I found that I was emotional, like for dumb reasons. It's like watching a commercial and like, it's really true, you know, and really feeling it. And Priscilla was looking at me like, what? Like, what's happening to you? Like, well, I got to get off this medicine, apparently. That, that wasn't a good reason to cry. That stuff wasn't really worth it. You know, that, that wasn't what merits the tears. Now, all of us as parents understand this number. You try to instruct your child who's crying way too often. Like, listen, honey, not everything should rise to the level of, <laughs> you know, not everything should get to that point. There are things that rise to that occasion, but most shouldn't. Now, for me as a, as a father of two sons first and then two girls, with my sons, a lot of times if they're about to cry about pain, I look at them and you're not going to cry about that. Why not? Because we're, we're trying to raise men. And there's something about that. If it's emotional pain, that's different. But my personal gillyism, you might say, with my boys is, no, you're strong. You got more in you than that. Uh, there's a strength that we ought to have. But if, it, if we're talking about sin, then let the tears flow. If I'm sitting there with one of my sons at night and they have some issue or, and, you know, they've, they've got some sin problem and, and they were crying over that, may it never be that I would tell them, don't weep over that. That's the kind of stuff that should move your heart. Not, not the commercial about puppies being abused. You can cry about that, I guess. But there are way too many Christian people who are severely concerned about animals and the treatment of animals and not worried about eternal souls. And it, it blows my mind. We're so worried about puppies and kittens, and we seem to have very little concern about the souls, the eternal souls of people that live across the street or that live in our neighborhood or wherever. It's, it's remarkable what's happening to us. We're seeing the rise of animal rights and the fall of human rights. It's just incredible. And I actually have a personal theory that I think most people don't really want children. They want pets. They don't really want friends. They want pets. And I'll go into that some other time. <laughs> I will, but yeah. If you want to draw near to God, what should you be miserable? What should you mourn? What should you weep over? Sin. The sin that you have tolerated. The double-mindedness that you have allowed into your life. And how is it that this audience at this time was doing that? What's got James so fired up? Go back to chapter 3 and verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show his good behavior by his deeds and in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not, this wisdom that you have adhered to, that you have embraced, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. 
For where there is jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above, how do you identify it? How do you identify the wisdom of the world that is demonic versus the wisdom of God? What's, what's the test? The wisdom that is from above is first pure, holy, that is, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You ever talk to a Christian brother or sister and they are adamantly trying to convince you of their position and they're angry about it? They're fired up. They're in your face. They're kind of red-faced and that whole... I've, I've encountered this pure joy a few times in my life. And this is the passage that comes to mind in such occasions. At what point do you realize you've, you've crossed over? Well, I think James is quite keyed up, you might say, because this people who ought to know better is viewing the demonic wisdom of the world, natural wisdom that just comes from humanity, as godly. And they're not even putting it through the test to determine what it is. They're not even sifting at all. They're just embracing a demonic even, earthly, natural wisdom and endorsing it as though it were the real deal. So that naturally gets them a little fired up. This is like calling a random book you enjoy, the Bible. This is uh, somebody who's, who's exalting worldly wisdom beyond its capacity and putting it in, in league with God's wisdom. And he's saying, look, that doesn't even make sense. Do you see from this wisdom purity? Do you see from this wisdom a peaceable, gentle, reasonable spirit? Is it full of mercy and good fruits? Good question. Then he goes further and he says, what is the source? In verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? We oftentimes, some psychopath goes out and he kills a bunch of kids at a school. And a lot of times what they do is they run out and they want to find out the motive. Because he's a psycho. He's, he's, he's lost his marbles. He's lost reality. That's the motive. And then we always want to sift it down unless it's uncomfortable motive. We sift down and we try to figure it out and then we can say, ah, this is why this, is why this happened. No, there is no explaining why someone does that. That's psychotic. Just to go out and kill a random group of people who are unarmed and have no idea you even have a problem? There's no real explaining that kind of psychosis. There's no real, there's no easy way to go, oh yeah, well this is, you know, that's because his mom didn't love him. And actually most of the mass shooters have all been guys who didn't have a dad at home. Did you know that? Most of them are on psychotropic drugs. All, I think every one of them, as far as I've seen, that they've done studies of, they've looked into that. That still doesn't explain it. That still won't stop it. We often want a source. What's the motive? What's the thing at the core? The thing at the core here is what? Your pleasures. You know what the big problem is? Not everyone out there. It's the person looking back at you in that mirror. 
And even philosophers of this world have sorted this out at times. Conquer yourself rather than the world, as Rene Descartes said. There's, there's this ridiculous idea in culture that my own life is banged up, but I'm going to go out there and be an activist for everyone else's cause. I'm banged up. I don't have my own life under control, but I'm going to tell you how to control your life. Remarkable. And Christian people should know better than this is this point here. Look, you have these pleasures that are going to war within you. How do you master those? Well, you definitely don't master those with the, the worldly wisdom that's out there that is earthly, natural, and demonic. Is not the source your pleasures, pleasures that wage war in your members? Peter says the same basic thing in chapter 2, verse 11. You got this internal conflict, this war that's raging, and you're playing games with it. He further illustrates the point from verse 1 throughout the rest of this until you reach verse 8. He says, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. Is this literal murder? Can a Christian actually do that? Yeah, of course they can. You read about David? Of course a Christian can do these things. Uh, or is he speaking in a more generic metaphorical sense regarding murder? Yes, I think it's both. I think he's emphasizing both. That's where, that is the source of this. Why is it that somebody goes out and kills someone else? Well, they, they're not getting what they want. They want to be heard. They want to be seen. They want some desire that they have to be met. It's not happening and it's building. It's raging inside of them. And they're not going to battle with that issue. So they're going to take it out on other people. Blaming it on someone else. You lust and don't have, so you commit murder. You're envious wanting what other people have and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You wish you had something other than what you do. You're breaking one of the, the most basic of the, of the commandments, being envious and acting like it's one of the respectable sins of a sort, and you can get away with this. Why is it that you, you have these fights, these quarrels, because you lust and, and you you don't have, you, you're envious, you can't obtain, so you fight, you bicker, you complain, and you don't have, why do they not have? Because you do not ask. Well, why wouldn't you go to God with your request when you want something? Why would you not take it to him? Well, maybe, because like what he's saying here, because you know you don't really care about God in that request. You just think he's a genie in the sky. You just think he's a slot machine. You know, just pop in the, and hopefully, oh, I get it, you know. I, I, I pulled the lever at the right time and everything worked out. He elaborates on that further when he says here, you ask and do not receive in verse 3. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives. You have corrupted prayer. so that you may spend it on your pleasures. The goal is for you to further delve into your desires. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Man, having corrupted prayer life is one of the, the deepest wells where you, can, where you can pour poison in a person's soul. If your prayers can be corrupted, I don't know if there's, there's much hope at that point unless you, as he says, be miserable, mourn, and weep. 
turn from such a sin. Then he really turns up the heat in verse 4. After saying all this, he says, you, and you'd think he'd be done, you know? You'd, you'd think he had kind of wore you out enough, took you behind the, the old woodshed and uh, went to work there a little bit, but now he, he's just getting warmed up. He says, you adulteresses. Again, going Old Testament with all of this, much of this is, is laden with Old Testament imagery and or references. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I could see in my own, you know, maybe first time reading through this or something like that, especially if I'm the original audience, hearing that going, whoa, James. We're talking about a little bit of envy. You know, we're talking about a little bit of, of lusting for things that I don't have. It, why would you go like full nuclear on me here and, and say that I, I want to be a friend of the world? Why would you say that I'm, an, I, I'm hostile to God and that I'm an enemy of God? Settle down, man. I've received that over the years with various people I've interacted with and said, well, why don't you settle down with that Bible stuff? You know, why are you taking this so serious? Well, I think James goes a lot further than I ever have in his accusation. You're, you're an adulteress. A scarlet letter here. I, this is a capital crime in, under the law. This is death penalty. And the, the problem here is that this original audience, just like us, has taken their sins and downplayed it. It's, it's just... A little bit of envy. I mean, everybody envies. Let's be real. Yeah, everybody envies something. Why do you think socialism is booming in its philosophical you know, reach in America now? Everybody wants something they don't have. We're envying other people. And the only way they got what they got is because it's unfair and blah, blah, blah. I mean, does James really need to be this serious about it? Well, if you want to be close to God, yes. How is it that they've made themselves friends of the world? Back in chapter 2, verse 1 through 13, what he points out is that they discriminate on the basis of external appearance. Rich guy comes in wearing nice clothes, how do you treat him? One way. Okay, how do you treat the poor guy with nothing? Another way to understand this might be something like this. A beautiful person walks in, how do you interact with them? Versus somebody who you don't see as beautiful. Somebody who has value in your thinking, a popular, a celebrity type person, how do you act? Do you treat the celebrity different than the nobody? If you're interacting on social media, if somebody has 100 million followers and they interact with you, you're like giddy, woohoo, right? And then some nobody with 12 followers does and you, you don't care. They don't matter. That's this basic idea. Discriminating on the basis of external appearance. That's what they had going on among them. And it was even illogical, as he points out. So the first thing they were doing to be friends of the world is they're, they're acting like the world and discriminating on external appearance because Christians don't focus on the outside. We seek to, to see that which is inside based upon their behavior. Uh, the second reason, second way in which they make themselves a friend of the world is that they speak negatively of each other. That's his point through chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 here. It says, how can you talk like that? 
How can fresh water and salt water be coming from the same fountain? It doesn't work. If you went over to one of our water fountains here at church, you walk out after service, you're like, man, that dude was laying some heat on me. I don't I need a drink. You go out there and you, you hit the, the faucet and you start drinking it and it's like half salt water, half fresh water. What would that even taste like? And I don't know. Just be bad fresh water. You'd be spitting that out immediately. It doesn't, that doesn't happen. It's either all of one thing or all of the other, and that's his point. Christian, child of God, what kind of stuff is flowing out of your mouth? That's a test to see whether you become friendly with the world and its system. Third way in which they showed their friendship with the world and their hostility towards God is this envy and selfish ambition that I just read a moment ago in chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. You have your own kingdom in your mind. Yeah, you might sing the song. Yeah, you might raise your hands or whatever it is. You might give a good show, but it's all in the, the effort to advance your own kingdom, your own cause, your own stuff. To make more of, of you in the end. So they're envying and being selfish. These are three ways in which they were becoming friends with the world. Plus, as it said in just in this chapter alone, back, back in verses 1 through 3, there is the pursuit of of sinful pleasures. So how is it that they've made themselves the friend of God might be a better question. If they've cozied up with the world and its system, how have they tried to flip it all and go, and go the other direction? And then he adds to it, verse 5, he says, Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose, that he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us? What's he talking about here? I'm going to hurry on because of the time, but basically what he's speaking of here is the exclusive allegiance that God calls for. No rival. You cannot love money and God. You cannot serve two masters. You'll love one and hate the other eventually. You'll reach that apex because God doesn't call for a part or a parcel of you. He calls for all. Love him not just with your hands and feet. Heart, soul, mind, strength. Everything that you are is what he has called upon. And you will either come to love that or resent that. I don't want to give him all of that. Why would I do that? So what's the response there from verse 5? I mean, understanding that he is that consuming fire, that he is calling for exclusive allegiance, and I haven't been that guy. Verse 6, but he gives a greater grace. What a wonderful interjection James gives. What a breath of fresh air that he gives us in this otherwise heavy text. He says, look, but God gives grace. Why? That's who he is. Unmerited favor to people who have not even earned it in any way. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Then he says in two military terms, verse 7, submit therefore to God. In response to this and knowing this, submit to God. The word submit here is the military term of queuing up behind, lining up behind someone. So the general calls into order or, or drill sergeant, whatnot, calls everybody into line and boom, you line up. Submit. Therefore, to God, and then on the other side of that, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Another military uh, bit of imagery for you here. You know the Romans had those big shields. Average height was about five and a half feet tall, and their shields were about four and a half feet tall. That shield was meant to, to block the entirety of the soldier's body if you need be. 
He can duck behind it, and he's protected. Here we see no mention of the rest of the armor of God, and we don't see any offensive attack. We find the resistance. And you know what's really interesting about a Roman army gathered together is one guy by himself is one thing, but you've got an army together, and it's like a, a shield wall. That's just a little bit of a, a side here to say fight together, not alone. And you'll find that resisting the devil is an easier fight. Resist the devil, and he will what? Flee from you. Then he draws back here. He says, draw near to God. In understanding this submitting to God process, this resisting of the devil and he'll flee, then says, now draw near to God. With all the stuff that's said here, it would be, there's a way to read this to understand, like, you know, basically, why would I come? Like, what's the incentive to come to God? Well, that's why we don't read a text by itself. What informs my desire to run to God as the prodigal repeatedly, systematically through the years, is that I have tasted and seen he's good. I've also tasted and seen the world and the damage that it has done to me, to my soul, to the people I love. I've watched it wreak havoc. Just yesterday, one of my girls came up with a magazine that was about Anne Frank. And we started talking. I started telling her more of the story of Anne Frank. You start going through that stuff, and you see the awful, heavy wickedness of sin. And it's devastating consequence. Every death, every disease is a result of sin and its consequence. It makes me run away from that nonsense and toward the Almighty makes me run back to my good father because I've seen how good he truly is. Draw near to him and he'll draw near to you. So now instead of it just being a sad kind of lamenting process of I don't want to do this, it, it purifies the mind as I go to cleanse my hands. I want to be clean because I don't want to be the fraud. As I mentioned in the beginning, the person who, you know, every man is as close to God as he wants to be. I don't want to be the guy who's looking back at my life like that, going, why wasn't I what I should be? What excuse do I possibly have? I got nothing. The scripture has laid it out before me. Make enough of your sin that you recognize the need to cleanse your hands, to purify your heart as that moves you to being miserable and mourning and weeping and your laughter being turned to gloom. I mean, do I want to leave you with that? No. What I want to leave you with is this, friend, that there is a war raging. There's a battle going on. Of course, there's a battle going on culturally. You know that. Politically, all that kind of stuff. Of course, that stuff's going on. And now it's become, you know, I think in the 80s and 90s, a lot of people, a lot of us got soft because life was good enough and we didn't see the battle all that clearly. Now things have gotten wild enough. If you don't have your head in the sand that you can notice, man, this is getting weird out here. It's getting weird out here. So culturally you're seeing it. Have you guys seen the new recruiter for the United States Navy? Any of you military guys? Transgender guy? Dresses up in dresses and makeup and the whole thing in order to recruit people to join the United States Navy. 
That's real. That's not just the Bud Light thing. That's the United States Navy. All of us who stand and salute the flag and all this stuff got to think. Some things are changing. This culture is not what it was. And I think we've been lulled to sleep on a lot of that. So there's an advantage to living in this day and age. You can see clearly this culture is not going to love and embrace the gospel. We go out and preach it, but we don't have the naivety to expect that things are going to go our direction. It should energize the desire to share the gospel, in fact. But that's one of the battles that's raging. The other, of course, is if we understand Scripture at all, we understand there's a demonic battle going on. John even prayed about that. Ephesians 6, our battle is not against flesh and blood. So we know that that's going on. But thirdly, and the biggest battle that you must wage is within you. There's your fight. There's your war. How do we fight? Yes, you take up the armor of God. But first, you put on humility. Verse 10. After he speaks of your joy being turned to gloom, he says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Humbling yourself, bringing yourself low enough to now be the student of God. To, to bow yourself and to say, teach me. Learn me a thing or two. Enlighten me. Let me know you. And in knowing him, I know that he will exalt me at the proper time. This is a heavy text. I wore a black suit, you know. As my, follow my dad's example there on that one a little bit. This is a heavy sermon. Uh, this text is heavy, though. Hopefully I didn't try to turn it into some version of what I would like to present, but rather to say there is a time to look at our sin, to take it seriously, to pause and reflect that we might be more of what we ought to be. So we don't have regret, but that we can come to him cleansed and purified, holy, presenting ourselves to him as a reasonable service of worship. Sacrifice of our lives for him, a, li a living sacrifice before the Lord. Let me pray. Our Father and our God, we are thankful to even know you. I praise you for an opportunity to open your word, and I pray that your word as it goes forth, it will not return void. We know that to be true. Lord, we pray that we might be able to see it with our living eyes and then declare your glory in response. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.